This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. No one is really surprised to hear that Amazon is one of the biggest, most profitable retail companies in the world. However, its massive success wasn't necessarily a given when the company started operations two and a half decades ago. Our next guest, Julie Benazet, joined Amazon in 1998 when the company was still pioneering the business of Internet retail. She was hired to find sites for Amazon's distribution centers as the company planned its growth. There were a lot of unknowns at the time as this was a new type of business, but the risks taken back then clearly paid off. Julie left the company in 2002 after building the company's first global real estate organization, and she joined Harvard's Graduate School of Design, where she taught the Challenges of Leadership Executive Program for a decade. She's since founded Business Growth Consulting, LLC, and the Journey of Not Knowing, LLC, and she continues to teach the value of taking risks and exploring uncharted waters, part of which is highlighted in her new book, The Journey of Not Knowing, How 21st Century leaders can chart a course where there is none. And Julie joins us right now. Julie, welcome. Thank you. Nice to, nice to be here. Thank you very much. So in your time at, at Amazon, how did that experience kind of frame your thinking for doing this type of book? <laughs> well, you could call it a survival tactic, but I was in a company that was in a new industry. There's no such thing as e-commerce when I got there. Uh, there hadn't been no company before. The organization was new. There was no such thing as a business plan. And uh, we had a large plate of work to achieve. Uh, so in order to achieve that end of that environment, we had to make up a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I like to invent. I've always enjoyed the entrepreneurial spirit. But what Amazon prepared me for was, whereas before an entrepreneurial mindset was a nice-to-have, it's fun to go try to make something better that hasn't been tried before, when I got to Amazon, it was a requirement because there was nothing that you could look back on and say, okay, that worked well, we'll do more of that. Right. Instead, you had to look forward and say, what does this new e-commerce customer want? What is it that they're going to expect in terms of uh, speed of delivery, the way that things are handled in the back end, in the customer service end? How do the programmers have to work together to create a new platform that will continue to address their evolving demands? So you were always had on your toes trying to anticipate what it is that these new customers wanted and then making it work from an inside place again with no precedent so uh, what became uh, our way of work at amazon evolved into the twenty first century where everybody works that way so that created for me the journey of not knowing which is simply about the importance of going toward rather than the way, away from the scariness of change to achieve something better. Yeah, and I would think that that is, a, is kind of that, that tightrope that a lot of executives may have issues with crossing because they want to have the security of the known, and they, and they do have the fear of the unknown. Absolutely. Uh, they get petrified when you say, okay, uh, you don't know if this new customer is going to like what you have to say, but how else are you going to find out unless you go and talk to this person? And um, I saw this at Amazon, and I see it written large in today's executives. is people would come in to present to us, 
of all the whiz-bang things they could do for our business without asking us what it is we were up to. Right. And part of the unknown is asking and being prepared to not know what they're going to say and be okay with the discomfort of that. And a lot of executives feel like their job is to be super confident, in charge, and in control. And if they believe that, they're going to miss what is actually going on. Because at the end of the day, we live in a world of constant change, and we are totally out of control. I mean, look at the madness of uh, Washington. Right, right. Well, that's an an opportunity to learn. And and I want to ask you how you think that that kind of dealing with the unknown has developed, especially maybe in the last decade or decade and a half, because of the, the, the impact that digital has on our society, not only the business side, but just on our personal side as well. Well, that's a great question. The digital world has created a life where everything's hyper-connected and fast. And what it has done is it speeded things up so fast, so much that what is happening is people have stopped thinking. And there's a lot of reactive behavior that's going on, a lot of acting out, rushing to judgment. And people take actions without the benefit of verifying facts. So what the digital world has accelerated is this bias towards action, even when the action doesn't make sense given what's really going on. I want to go back in your time at Amazon for a second uh, because you talk in the in the early parts of the book about these first couple of experiences of uh, of building out fulfillment centers and I guess one of the first ones was was in the West here in the United States but you talk about one that you had to develop in Germany, which I think is a unique dynamic when you're talking about trying to understand what the customer wants. The difference being from what maybe the the customer here in the United States wants in comparison to what the expectations are for customers in Germany. Well, in Germany, we weren't exactly welcome. Uh, we had <laughs> yeah <laughs> we uh, we had acquired uh, a, a online book organization there. And the owner was pleased to have the large check and was pleased that to have the honor of Amazon coming to buy it. But they weren't pleased with us coming in and saying, well, no, this isn't right. Uh, we need to move your distribution facility to another part of the country where we have more space and we're more centrally located. We can't tell you where, but we can tell you why is that we just don't see you achieving that in the small space you have here. So there was a lot of pushback of you don't understand us, you don't understand how we work, you don't understand that if you move more than 30 miles away, you're going to have to create a social plan which will fund people's livelihood for the next 10 years. Uh, You just don't understand. So when we arrived, and then I, for myself personally, I don't understand the German language. Sure. It was a little inconvenient. Uh, but uh, we worked around that. But what we had to do is, in warp time is to learn from them what the German setup was, that we couldn't have things like a nice database that told us where in the country everything was uh, because there was no integrated database of real estate. Right. Um, there was no um, – Amazon itself is uh, at that time was – Hardly credit worthy. Uh, the, the, uh, we were beloved by Wall Street because our stock soared, because people saw this great future. But the lenders weren't so convinced. 
because they said, you have no credit. You're not profitable. In fact, you stubbornly say you don't want to make profits for the next few years, which was not a, a very strong base to go in from. So when you arrive at the doors of, of landlords who have never met you, who say, yeah, we hear about in the United States you've got this thing going, but we don't know about it here. We have, right. we have requirements. Um, it took a lot of painting a picture of here's what it is we are to do. Here is the acceleration of the Internet, which is growing at 2,300% a year. Yeah. Here is the acceleration of people buying off catalogs. And you put the two, the, these things together, you have a business model that is only going to grow, and it's going to grow quickly. And that's why we have to get this super-sized facility to house all of this. Um, which, and, and they finally believed it. And we were able to uh, get a distribution center, but there was a lot of insanity along the way when people just, because of the scariness of it and the speed, uh, of pushback. So uh, I spent a lot of my time feeling like a social worker saying, okay, what's getting your way? What's stopping you? Because the journey of not knowing is, is not just knowing what idea is going to work. It's also not knowing how people are experiencing things inside. Right. How are they with the new? How are they in taking experiments? How do they feel about failure? Yeah. Now, one of the things that was very freeing in working with Amazon that executives these days can learn from is failure was okay. We failed all the time. And it, but the important thing is what you learn from it and realize, okay, means we're trying something out. Okay, what do we need to change to push this forward? Some things were abandoned entirely. Uh, Z-Shops, for example, was brought out in the late 90s as um, a competitor to eBay and because we wanted a, an online auction kind of format. And it failed miserably because we just didn't know how to do it right. But right. what it led to was the format we have today at Amazon, I say we, I go back as if I'm still there. Yeah. <laughs> I am not. Um, but It's a it natural tendency, some, so don't worry about it. Yeah. yeah thank you. Uh, the, it led to the Amazon Marketplace, with, which is an integrated model of being able to buy something from the vendor, buying something that is used, or buying something that is from a third party, and you can buy it all from the same place on the same page. And believe it or not, that made a big difference. And 50% of the retail activity on Amazon now occurs in the marketplace format. But it started with a failure. And back in 98, 99, when we were trying to get this distribution center in Germany, um, we were awash in failures. Yeah. But it led to something that was successful. And we got the distribution center. You talk you talk uh, about four kind of key principles, core, the core four, you call them, yeah. a, a, as to really the important components uh, of this journey of not knowing. Can you take us through them, please? Certainly. Uh, well, the whole point of the journey of not knowing is to learn to travel through the discomfort of trying out new ideas to make life better. And your, your job as an executive or anybody in life is to make something better. So in order to do that and deal with the discomfort of going to this unknown place, you have to find out to do four things. The first is uh, discover your dreams. And what that means is Choose something that you want to improve, something to make better. It could be anything from 
you want a, a different communication culture in your company because people aren't honest enough with each other. They resist giving each other feedback. And so what you want to build is a culture where you give honest feedback, you learn how to do it in a constructive way. It's a disruption because people are so conflict avoidant, but it's an important change. It can be choosing a new market to go into. It could be a different way of uh, staffing teams in which the teams themselves choose their members rather than the managers and letting them manage that and let the results speak for themselves. But the idea is you choose something that you want to make better. That is your dream. It's often something that you've been avoiding because it bugs you so much, and it's going to be hard. But once you have that dream, then what you do is you have to go learn about the people who will benefit from it. If you are looking at project teams and they are the ones who would benefit from changing to a regime where they choose their own members, is you spend time with those teams and say, okay, what goes on for you? Where do things trip up? What happens when you have a member who's not functioning at a high level? And what that does is it crystallizes what your dream is and allows you to hone it so when you go to test it, you have better facts to deal with. The second um, principle of the core four is to get comfortable with the scariness of risk. We spend a lot of time trying to de-stress ourselves, trying to be mindful and so on, and all of these are good things. But when you're in the business of trying new things and the new behaviors that go with that, you're going to be in a place where you're going to be nervous. And it's important to accept that as part of the deal, that uh, however you experience it physically, however you experience it mentally, is to not fight it, but to embrace it as saying, okay, this is the cost of trying to improve things, and that's good. It doesn't mean you sit and shake uh, uh, and do nothing, but you allow it to travel with you. In effect, allow it to say, okay, this is a a sign to me that I have to pay more attention to what's going around me, to learn from the others, to ask questions, to hear what they're saying, to course correct as we go along, and be okay with the fact that they too are going to be nervous, and I have to deal with that. The third thing is to watch out for self-sabotaging behaviors, and I call these hooks. These are defensive behaviors that are very common in business and in life. We all know them. I've, I've identified 10 of them. But what they do is they are ways of calming yourself, of giving yourself some way of feeling you have a modicum of control over things. And, um, but what the problem is, is while they may help settle you down in the moment, they will take you off the course to the bigger idea. And so you, the importance of getting, uh, watching out for these self-sabotaging behaviors is to learn to recognize them and to switch strategies. And these are things like micromanagement, perfectionism. I would never suggest any executive was ever perfect. Right, right. <laughs> um, conflict <laughs> avoidance, uh, disengagement. There are, many, there, there are things that are very common, but the, what happens is when they set in, And we all do these things. This doesn't mean that you have a psychological problem. It means you're a normal person trying to find your way through a scariness, and you're trying to calm yourself. But when you catch yourself, for example, readjusting the fonts on a proposal or uh, yelling at your team to make sure they got the 
the PowerPoint slides just so. Instead of thinking about, is this proposal really a winning proposal for this client we're going to approach? That's the time to catch yourself that, ooh, I'm micromanaging. What's going on here? Sure. And then you go into a strategy of literally stopping yourself and stopping the speeding train of reactivity and go to a place of, okay, what do we need to do here? Have we spent enough time with proposal? Um, I taught strategy for years, and it, it's remarkable how, what a high percentage of the time a strategy fails because people didn't know their stakeholders. They didn't spend enough time, either huh. internally to the organization or externally. They didn't get what was the real problem because they just said, oh, i got to get this done, just please put a band in, let's go. And at the time, it's all done in a spirit of, oh, this is good. Uh, it's good I'm making change, but it's not enough. You have to go to that uncomfortable place of saying, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't get what they're upset about. Right. And go to, to the humbling place of learning what it is that people care about. But that's the point of when you go from reactivity to activity is you're going out in a learning mindset to take in what you got to know and that you didn't know before to make that uh, uh, idea work. The final principle of the core four is to find drivers to help fuel your travel through the discomfort of the new idea that comes with the unknown. And in the driver, it can be anything, it's anything that gives you purpose. It can be a really um, serviceable driver like, I just hate that guy so much that <laughs> I would rather die right. than he wins this proposal. Uh, so because I so hate this guy, it would kill me to see a smug expression on his face if he wins and I don't. I am going to go work with a super scary analytics department in our company who make me feel like a moron, but they will definitely help me put together a winning proposal because I don't want to see that guy's smug expression. So it doesn't have to be something that speaks well of you. <laughs> it just has to work. Right. And it has to work for you. You will find a different messaging for your team, for sure. But for you is to find something to say, okay, this is going to help me navigate this discomfort. More powerful are core drivers, and core drivers about who you are as a person. What is it that makes you, you? What do you care about? When you, uh, a very powerful film is the Invictus uh, of yep. Nelson Mandela, and yep. it's a heroic uh, film. And everybody I've talked to who lived in South Africa at the time tells me it's really quite accurate to the extent they could tell. But the whole idea is Mandela did not want to be a victim. He was in prison for 27 years, that he studied his jailers, and he learned who they were as people. And when he came out of prison, he wanted all of the people in South Africa to be equal. And, but in order to do that, he had to go through all sorts of scary experiments. Uh, the whole thing about the rugby, World Rugby yep. Championship was a, a huge bet because you know black Africans didn't even play rugby. <laughs> That's right. And here he is trying to get them to pull together. But the idea is his core driver was he so did not want to be a victim. It allowed him to try out a lot of new and scary things. And we all find things. I have had countless people 
um, women tell me that they had mothers who thought that they would fail, and they would tell them that. And so the, these women would come into my office and, and tell me these stories, and, they, and then tell me they had spent their life disproving their mother, and that was a driver for them. Right. I have worked with many men who, uh, and I remember in particular an executive group where five out of six of the members were men and very successful ones, and we were sitting around in a meeting one day, and it turned out that every one of them had a distant and distancing father. Huh. And how it really empowered them to say, I am going to prove to that guy that I can do it. So then how, um, how, much, how much do you think then, how much do you think leadership is truly going into the unknown then, especially in this day and age? All of it. <laughs> yeah. All of it. You have businesses that are changing quickly, customers that are changing, the businesses that have failed to recognize the customer change. Uh, just think of what social media has done. It has really elevated the power of the individual to right. have an opinion. And right. I worked with a restaurant company where they said they just dread it when people take out their phones at the table and start photographing the meal and then typing something because they can put out there that they had a crummy meal, and it really hurt business. So we have to now, as leaders, keep ahead of where the customer is going and acknowledge that they have an opinion that, like it or not, it counts. So that absorbs people all the time, and it's exhilarating at the same time because it makes you want to try new things. For example, restaurants that went to a format of having the kitchen open to the dining room was in response to the people in the diner being curious about cooking, right. curious what brought it together. And it's been a very successful model. Julie, thanks very much for coming on the show today and talking about the book. It's it's a fantastic work by you, and uh, we wish you all Thank the best you. with it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Julie Benazette, the book is The Journey of Not Knowing, How 21st Century Leaders Can Chart a Course Where There Is None. Uh, great to have her joining us on the show. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.